Welcome to the Biz and Mayhem podcast, where we talk about the mayhem in our lives and how to get ahead in business and your career. This is Chris Batchelor, and I'm here with my co-host, Tara Parker. Let's get started. How are you doing this week, Tara? Pretty good. How about you, Chris? I'm doing great. Let's go into our first segment, the newsroom. This is the newsroom. Have you heard about this, Chris? Did you hear about the the protesters, people who took their their extra time staying at home to go to Topeka and protest the stay at home order? So I know that uh, this has been happening around the country. Uh, you've been seeing um, big groups of people who are not uh, socially distancing and they're standing outside of uh, state houses. And uh, I heard, yeah, last week we had our first one here in Kansas, or at least the uh, first one that I've heard of, and uh, it was happened to be at our state capitol up in Topeka. But uh, what, what happened up there? Well, you just had several people up there who were telling or yelling and uh, expressing themselves to the governor through her capitol building walls to let us go back to work. We're tired of staying home. We're tired of being your political prisoners. We are not your hostage. We want to go back to work. So all the local news stations were up there, our region and the surrounding areas. And I think they mentioned there were four healthcare workers and scrubs up there just saying, we're here to support the people who are on the, the front line, so to speak. Not, not my favorite way to put that, but um, Governor Kelly didn't really care. You know, while people are, are demanding they go back to work and get back to their normal lives, Governor Kelly said, no, not until we have the health indicators that tell us that you can go back to work, that it's safe. But that's kind of leaving it very vague. What does safe mean? Yeah, I don't who defines safe and right. And so, if you do it, you know, you kind of do a Google search because you know Google knows everything about what is a health indicator, and it's several things: anywhere from access to healthcare services to clinical preventive services, environmental quality. There's several things on this list. So, which which indicator are we supposed to go by? What is she being led with, and what is it considered safe? Or does this, I mean, it's a human to human virus, just as the flu and the cold are, and those are no more or no less safe. And those are everywhere. So I'm trying to figure out what is safe. How do we, where's the, where's that gauntlet at? When does it get thrown down? A lot of anxiety is around right now, um, you know, of when we can get out of this, right? Right. Um, a lot of people are like, okay, we've gotten ourselves into this mess. Where, where does the other side of the, you know, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? And you know, what are the specific indicators? And nobody's really come out and said, well, you know, when it gets to this level, we'll do this. Or when it gets to that, we'll do that. And it's, um, they're starting to open up Georgia now, I saw. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it's a lot of speculation around that. But Kansas, you know, is uh, like a lot of states, uh, you know, there's a lot of diversity within the state as far as geography and population density and those sorts of things. Yeah. And, um, you know, a statewide ban may be too broad. Uh, you know, the folks that are out in Western Kansas where there's very few people per square mile, uh, yeah. certainly don't need the same measures that the folks, uh, you know, in the inner cities do. So, uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. And we'll see. I know that when she started this whole shutdown, she said, I want two weeks of, you know, in decreasing numbers. And it's not, I don't think that's been happening, but I don't think you're going to see that happen any more than you did with anything else that's out there and is as contagious as what this appears to be. So I know, keep going protesters. Maybe you'll get through to her. We'll see. And I think we're going to have a second, you know, uh, resurgent here. As soon as they start opening things up, you know, people are going to transmit this thing and then you're going to start getting, you know, herd immunity to this. And 
Um, I think we've, we're going to just have to expect that second wave. Um, and it's probably going to be worse than the first wave. Right. But that's the, the part that bothers me about that is all of the critics that say, Oh, you should have kept things shut down are going to look at this as validation. And, uh, you know, all the people that want to get back to work are going to say, well, it's worth the risk. So, I mean, you know, who's really right. You know, I don't, I don't really know what the right answer is there. I think the right answer is change your behavior. If you don't want to catch this, then mind your mind where you put your hands and mind where your face has been and try to keep your space a little cleaner than normal. That's what this is all about, in my opinion, but I'm no expert. I'm just a person that is sitting at home per the order. Yeah, I'm I'm not an expert either. I guess uh, to me, it gets back to personal responsibility, right? And if yes. you're in that high risk category, then you need to understand that and take precautions for somebody that's in your category, right? If you're right. not in a high risk category, then, you know, maybe you don't need to do some of those things, but that, that goes back to a very, you know, sort of American, um, you know, fundamental part of us, right. That we have our, our choice and, you know, we need yes. to be smart enough to, you know, do things that are, um, you know, that makes sense for who we are. I, I agree. I, I have a friend who's, um, their husband is, sick and been sick for a long time will continue to be sick. And that's a struggle for them. She's perfectly healthy. And she has realized that her place is to be home because she can threaten her husband. But I don't know that everybody sees it that way. They just see us, everybody go home and stay home. But for people like my family and probably yours, this kind of thing, will we'll catch it, we'll get over it and we'll be fine. But for her household, she's making a better decision. So I think to your point, we should be able to make our own decisions regarding this and then accept the responsibility of those decisions as well. And realize that unfortunately folks, death is a part of life, but however it happens, it happens. And in throughout the stay at home order, my family has experienced two deaths and it hasn't been COVID related, but because of COVID we can't get together to mourn. And right. that's really, really difficult. Yeah. That has to be hard. It's definitely not easy. Moving on. Let's talk about the next thing you've got on here. Uh, so Biden is uh, opening up uh now about his running mate search? He's teasing, I think. I read the article and, and you know, I've been kind of watching this. I find this to be very interesting that, you know, this has not been as big a deal as what it had been prior to the COVID-19 thing. And so with, and I already speculated that Biden would choose a female given the Me Too movement, the the gender equality at work, conversations that have been taking place. And, it, and, it, and you also knew me, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist. I like those kinds of things. They're entertaining to me, but he has teased names out there such as, um, I forget how to say your name, so I have to look at it. Klobuchar? Klobuchar? What is her name? Oh, what is Klobuchar? He's teased um, the fact that he might choose her for running many. That's that's his, on his consideration list. He teased, I, he basically said something along the lines that uh, actually the quote is, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is going to be my person. You know, <laughs> like the experience in the world and so she, he's definitely teasing that that female um, idea. I think he has talked about Elizabeth Warren is up there in his um, go-to list, along with Kamala Harris. Uh, Whitmer was one. I was really surprised if, you've, if you're familiar with this particular. Um, oh, I think she is the governor of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Let me pull it up. Um, but he has uh, stated that she would be really great for the role too. I think that's going to be a very difficult one to sell considering she's being compared to Hitler right now because of <laughs> what she's done in her state regarding COVID-19. 
That's generally um, not helpful uh, on the national stage. No, but I mean, she's really taken the lockdown to a whole other level and that, you know, you can be, um, you, you can suffer um, legal consequences for being outside your home. She's not allowing mm-hmm. people to travel in cars together. She's put the kibosh on visiting people. And if you're caught, there is legal consequences for it. So she's really, um, she's taken some major initiative on this. Let's put it that way. And she's not getting very good feedback from her constituents in her state. Well, I wonder how much of that will hold up to the test of time, right? Right. Well, you know, what are her protests going to look like? We see what our governor looks like in her protests, but man, I, I I would hate to be the person on the receiving end of those protesters. Yeah, sure. That would upset me, but yeah, he's got a long list of women on here that he's looking at. Um, and some of them are the ones that were running against him saying he is no good. He, you don't want him as president. And now they're like, heck yeah, we'll serve with him. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> like, there's um, a, lot of, a lot of people on that list that are looking to further their own political career, right? Oh, absolutely. And this is where my little conspiracy guy and I start talking in that if I'm a, I love political dramas. Um, I, you know, there was scandal in house of cards. All those are really fun for me. Then it goes back to the West wing and, um, the vice president, all those shows are, were fun for me to watch, but all of them have shown that I've seen, I'm sure there's others out there, but they all showed the female role was that gained the presidential role um, in the show started off as the vice president. They right. couldn't get the role legitimately through votes, but they had to get it by default. And so it's like, well, they're picking Biden. Who's got a lot of controversy surrounding him and his mental health. Uh, there's and a his, lot of his health in general, right? Not- his health, well, his mental health, they are, uh, there's a lot of people out there that are suggesting that he may have Alzheimer's, that he's showing oh, the first signs of yeah. Alzheimer's or some sort of dementia. And it's kind of weird that the Democratic Party or anybody would put this kind of person up there that is up against these kinds of accusations and then put a woman beside him. So if something happens and he doesn't, he's not able to complete his duties you take him out and then you have a woman president. So it's, and that's what all of these other political shows have shown too. So I, I find the alignment very interesting on this one. Well, what I think is interesting is, um, you know, if he, if there's any sort of question out of his mental health, um, that's going to be a really hard one to take him out of the presidency and put somebody else in. Right. Uh, right. because, uh, I mean, he's got to be incapacitated or, you know, um, you know, basically dead. Right. Uh, I think if, uh, if he's just up there and, and not, you know, performing, you know, to a hundred percent, I think it's going to be a lot harder to get the, um, mechanisms in place to get him, uh, to where he's, he's not president and you've got somebody right. else acting now. I mean, they could always have the vice president essentially be the acting person. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, I just, I think that's an interesting, uh, case and, um, it, you know, it's something that millions of Americans, uh, fight too, right? Because with these diseases, mm-hmm. their loved ones don't want to give up control of their lives. And Correct. right now in this, in this country, it's very difficult to, you know, remove somebody from control of their life. Yes. So I, I think that's an interesting uh, point to look at, but, um, you know, politically too, a, a lot of these names, there's a lot of really, uh, left leaning, or, or mm-hmm. left, I shouldn't say leaning there, squarely left uh, <laughs> yeah. placed political figures, um, you know, and Biden's, you know, a little bit central uh, for the Democrats, but uh, he certainly is, is very far on the left too. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, who, who he picks. I think if he picks somebody that's too extreme, 
to the left, he's going to have a really hard time getting some of the moderate votes. Uh, yeah, and so right. we'll, well, we'll see where that goes. He did lean in. Somebody had asked him on this article that I'd read if Michelle Obama was on his list of of uh, potentials. And he said, I would love to have her, but I don't think she wants to live anywhere near the White House again. Yeah, she's done with that, right? <laughs> she's kind of beyond that. But then it does say he is seeking out the advice of uh, President Obama as to timing and the qualities to look for right. in the vice president candidate. So this should be interesting. I, I, it's, it's probably going to be somebody that we're not expecting and probably not surprised at the same time. Yeah. I think the smartest thing he could do politically would would to be pick a vice president that's pretty right leaning or right centric uh, mm-hmm. because that would give him good balance, right? I would um, think so, yeah. You know, in the la- the last election that we had, we had very uh polar opposites to to mm. choose from, you know, there's no centralist um, you know, pair and I think somebody right. that can go on the ticket that's uh you know a centralist would have uh, a lot of uh, sway with a lot of those you know uh, votes that are just out there in the middle yeah i would agree with that but i doubt it's going to happen it's it's uh, the us versus them political oh, yeah. war yeah I, I agree with you too it's definitely us versus them and uh polar polar opposites is is mm-hmm. kind of the norm and uh you know well we'll see what happens mm-hmm. but uh certainly uh, an interesting thing to watch and uh it's uh kind of interesting that the last, you know, presidential election we had, all we heard was about this politics stuff uh, for, you know, nine months before the election. And now here we are less than nine months before the election and you hardly hear anything on the news about it. So. Uh, No, but Facebook is telling you every time you open it up to get ready to vote by mail. Yes. Like vote for who vote where, what? Right. No. Yeah. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Also, the next next thing I got on the list here is um, we have a Kansas farmer who sent um, he had five N95 masks left and he kept four for his family and sent one to uh, Governor Como up in New York and asked him to give it to somebody on the front lines. And uh, he wrote a very nice letter to him. Uh, and I've got a uh, link to the actual picture of the letter. It's actually a handwritten letter. Uh, and there's a video out there of Governor Como reading uh, this letter out on. Uh, you know, on video and it's, uh, it's really quite touching. And I think it's a testament to, you know, who we are as Americans and how, uh, you know, we'll reach out to help out people that we've never met before. Yeah. I, I haven't seen this. I just started seeing bits and pieces of this today. So this farmer just as it just out of nowhere, just sent a mask to, um, governor Cuomo to give to somebody on the front lines. That's it. That's that's pretty much the story. He had these, uh, he's a farmer, right? And of course, you know, when Mm -hmm. you do farming, you have to have protective gear because some of the chemicals are pretty nasty. Um, so he had a box of, uh, five of them left over that, you know, that he hadn't used. And so, uh, he boxed one up and sent it out to the governor and, uh, it's just really, you know, kind of a nice goodwill gesture. And, Wow. Obviously, one one mask isn't going to change the world, but I thought it was pretty significant because um, it just shows us how uh, you know a small gesture can really change the conversation, um, right. especially like when you're at work. Um, you know, having uh, a small gesture like this can make a really big uh, difference in morale and and how people think of you and yes. uh, how the organization acts. So I, I thought that was really great. Yeah, that is. Pre- I'll take a look at that. That does sound good. So the next fun we, one we have is the, uh, <laughs> of course, right now, uh, the whole Facebook and internet is going nuts because oh. they think that 
President Trump told everybody to go inject themselves with disinfectant. The memes are beautiful and funny. They're oh, awesome. This, this pandemic has, has created the most amount of crazy memes that i've ever seen ever oh, i think i think it's, it's gonna be one to be tied for for sure i think so i think so and so i i did comment the other day i was speaking to somebody and i said you know i was viewing something that aoc had said about the economy opening it back up in COVID 19 and i thought you know between her and trump you shouldn't have to work that hard to decipher some of their rhetoric yeah. but they're politicians yeah. and that's kind of what they do they're either great at being speakers you know obama was a great speaker i'd love to listen to him didn't always agree with what he said but he was easy to listen to yeah trump yeah, trump takes a couple of shots of something to kind of gear up and be able to hear what he's going to say because he doesn't always articulate it so well and so with this thing coming out it's like you know come on folks a, a little common sense goes a really long way even though it's apparently not that common but Seriously, do you really think he's encouraging this kind of behavior to to inject poisons into your body as a means of protecting yourself from COVID nineteen? I don't. Well, and that's why in the show notes, I actually put a uh, picture of yes. of what we think is the transcript here. Uh, but uh, you know, I mean, you'd never see Obama up at a uh, at a news conference like like Trump's doing for this thing. I mean, Obama was very polished. Everything he did was right off the teleprompter, right? And he didn't kind mm-hmm. of go off of script at all. And and that's not what Trump is doing here. He's he's just, you know, kind of answering questions and, and he's totally off script. And um, I, I mean, I think he's trying to be really genuine here. And I think the media took this and just kind of ran with it over this one word disinfectant. But if you take the word disinfectant and kind of replace it with the word drugs, then it makes total mm-hmm. sense. Right. I mean, he just chose a poor right. word to describe something, although the word isn't totally inaccurate i mean he's talking about uh, i think it's uv light therapy uh, yeah. where you basically yeah. use uv light to to kill the virus and kind of uh you know circulate the blood through underneath the uv light and circulate it back into the body so it's uh uh it's really uh kind of an interesting therapy it doesn't look like it's very mature right now but it looks like it's got some yeah. promise um, but the president's basically saying, you know, basically there are no, uh, options off the table to try and get rid of this thing. And the media right. is just going after him, you know, like, like a pack of hound dogs. When you have to wonder that at some point you realize the media is not filled with idiots and it's not filled with stupid people. They just know it's almost like marketing masterminds that are doing PR work in reverse. And it's, it's really you just have to wonder how do you sleep at night knowing that you're expressing these kinds of things when you know better. Yeah. It really, to me, it discredits the media. It makes them look like they're, you're trying to, you're trying too hard to turn a population against a man who's trying to do his very best. And to the, the sentiments that have been put out there for the last four years, desiring our president to fail is like a- asking the the pilot of a, of a plane to crash the plane. Yeah. It's like, you know, you just, you don't have to like him. I'm not, I'm not an Obama fan by any means, him or his wife, but I didn't want him to fail because I'd go down with him. And so will everybody else that I know. And so that's not the way you want it to work. Maybe he and I didn't align on every platform and he changed his platform. And I don't think people followed that. He changed his mind about several things, including gay marriage. And it was another big one that, you know, I followed him closely on. And that's, you can do that. That's the great thing about being an American and you can have the choices that you want. You can not align or align with the people that you want, but 
I mean, going after Trump the way that they are, it's, I'm sorry, media, but you're just crediting yourself to me. I, I, I watch you less and less. In fact, the last two weeks, I've kept myself off of the national broadcasting stations and 10 times happier, 10 times happier because yeah. I don't have to listen to all that muck. Yeah, it does. It does wear on your mood when you kind of listen to the doom and gloom every day and then you can't even trust what you're hearing. Right. No. And uh, I, I, yeah, I, um, I think what you're going to see out of all this, you know, long term is you're probably going to see some sort of legislation and regulation in journalism. And I think that's long overdue. I hope so. And I brought that up to a, a friend of mine as we were talking about this and his platform was it'll never happen because of the second amendment. And I thought, you know, I've, I'm a graduate student right now. I'm almost done with it. I can't put out one single assert, assertion of mine or put any kind of platform of mine out there without citing my sources. And I kind of, I feel strongly the media should do the same stinking thing. If you're going to put out there a point that you're saying is fact, back it up. Yeah. And if you can't do it, don't report it. Well, and I think the bigger point here isn't really so much political that, that the big takeaway for me is in our careers, you know, we look at, at this and, and, you know, basically he, he used one word, you know, sort of, uh, that was an emotionally in, in this context was emotionally charged. Right. And, right. um, I mean, let's not forget we had people eating Tide Pods last year. So, I mean, there are some really well, dumb people out there. You they're know, looking and, toilet seats this year, Chris. I mean, they're yeah. evolving. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, so, I just, I don't know. I, I think it's uh, it's a good reminder that you need to choose your words carefully and uh, and yes. kind of going off the cuff and can can be damaging sometimes. But I think I think like the media, I think there's people at work that do the same sort of thing is, you know, they get a, you know, they get a thing against somebody else. And that one person mm-hmm. says a one little thing. And then you're like, Ooh, look what they said. Ooh, you right. know, so it's, it's easy to take stuff out of context. And, um, well, especially so, when you want to, when you right. want to, and you have yeah, a narrative you're that you're trying for to push. It. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, obviously we have some emotional intelligence that's lacking out there politically and in the media. So and maybe one day they'll grow up. Yeah. I'm not so sure. I mean, they're all really intelligent, right? I think, I think that they're just trying to play a game to be a means to an end, right? They want to take down Trump. They want Trump gone. But uh, I I just, you know, I think a lot of these time, a lot of these things, it ends up backfiring on them because the people that support Mm -hmm. Trump just are going to support him a little bit more. Yeah, because that spiteful personality that us Trump supporters have, (laughs) I think (laughs) it's kind of ingrained in us. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll... Hopefully this whole thing goes away and I'm, I'm tired of hearing about disinfecting because when I first saw this on, on the news, I was kind of like, what, you know, like, come on, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, he's, he's pretty wild sometimes, but come on. I mean, he's got to be smarter than that. And then sure enough, oh, well, he didn't really say that. And he, they took it out of context and you're like, okay, there it is. So. Well, I'll tell you, if you're going to take his words out of context, then you need to go back to AOC and take her words out of context. Yeah, so th- there's a good discussion to be had there, too, all right? Because isn't there a <laughs> sexual uh, a, a allegation against Joe Biden right now? But uh, you only seem to hear about that on Fox News. And you don't hear about it on the other news channels. So. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, if we're going to play, play fair on both sides, not just the one. Right. It's, but the media is, is liberally driven, and that's it. So, but what is there more to say about that? Yeah, I, I, that's where I think mm-hmm. you're going to end up seeing some uh, some regulation come out of this at the end of the day yeah. uh, in the and long term. So. so, It's time to work that career and lift and push and lift and push. You got it. Now harder, lift 
and push. It's the career workout. I think it's going to be an interesting one. It's how to dress for work and job interviews as far as part of the career workout segment. All right. And so I'm a, this is fun for me because I dress professional at work all the time, no matter who wears what. And I have for the last few years because I've, I've worked in the banking industry and in the banking industry, whether you are serving the public every day, or if you're on the back office taking care of those tasks, you have to dress professional. They enforce that dress code from no tattoos showing to no weird or unusual um, piercings. Wait, I didn't to, know you, you know, can't you have like a face post. tattoo and work in baking. Like, so right. That, oh man. <laughs> they say that's a no, no, that are the, the <laughs> cheek piercing or, you know, things like that. So you would see people with these strange bandages on different parts of their body. And you're like, did you get cut? Like, are you consistently cutting that part of your body every single day? No, nope, uh-huh. I've got a tattoo and I'm not allowed to show it. But you, <laughs> you have these customers who come in covered in tattoos. Yeah. And they're, they feel a little out of balance because they're in this really nice facility and nobody has a tattoo except they're all covered in tattoos. They're just, they have they're to cover them up. Covered. So. <laughs> So in having that wardrobe, I just thought, you know, my, the the job following that position was, you know, just business casual, just, you know, khakis and a polo shirt is fine. And I thought, uh, uh, I just dropped a whole bunch of money on this wardrobe that I've been wearing for two years. I'm going to wear it out. Yeah. And it's good stuff. So it lasts for years. And then I took it with me to my current employer, which is also business casual. And so I'm walking around the halls, probably looking like an executive. I've, you know, I've got pencil skirts and, button up shirts and slacks and everybody else is in their khakis and everything. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm fine. I'm comfortable. And I, and I don't get any slack for it, but it's funny because I have gotten slack in the past for the way I dress because I was overdressed for my position. But I thought, you know what? I don't plan to have this position forever. I'm going to move up somehow. And part of that is the way that I look and my, my, um, I think somebody's called it personal brand, which I really like that term in terms mm-hmm. of how you present yourself at work. Yeah, I've I've gone through uh, kind of different segments of this. I mean, I think it's definitely better to dress for the position that you want than the one that you have. I think there's some limits on that, though. Um, yeah. You know, particularly if you're in a position that requires you to be active or outside, or you know, yes. it doesn't mean you know if you're if you're a stock person, uh, you shouldn't necessarily be wearing a suit and tie. Right. Right. Um, yes. But right. but even if you are a stock person, there's ways to you know, present yourself a little more professionally. It'll make sure your shirt's tucked in, your pants actually right. fit, clean. you know, you're clean, you know, that sort of stuff. Well, so I think that's exactly a- what this article goes into, Chris, is that, you know, if you, if you wear shirt and t-shirts um, or shirt um, jeans and t-shirts to work, keep them clean, keep right. your shoes looking nice. And that's one thing that you'll notice more than anything is if somebody's shoes are real ratty looking, you'll see that before the rest of their outfit for some reason. I know I do. And I don't mean to look, but there it is. Yeah, and so yeah, just just be presentable, be nice, neat, and clean, and whatever whatever you're trying to do to up you know to the next level. If you can't dress for the role, at least verbalize um, correctly that that's the role you're looking to go into. Um, one of the points that was made on there was to dress like your managers, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm on the fence about that one. That's, some managers, you're you're so, so not all people know how to dress appropriately at work. That's Right. I've I've been in a position where those who were in, you know, they were in manager positions, but they were in positions that had a, as the as the article points out, there's a certain kind of look you're supposed to have with that, like accountants or doctors. 
And so in this, in this one company that I worked for, they didn't have a very strict dress code. It was a business casual, casual, whatever. And you could wear jeans to work whenever you wanted to type of thing. But you had women there wearing Daisy Duke shorts that were in their 50s and 60s. Whoa. And it's like, you know, there's, yeah, there is a limit. That's business or you'd have casual, some- <laughs> casual right there. <laughs> it's yeah, quite so. And then you had the gals that were wearing cocktail dresses to work in the same work environment. Yeah. And so it's when you leave people to their devices, you know, you there it does present the opportunity possibly for some difficult conversations about your personal attire, your personal brand. And so it's great to do your thing and, and present yourself the way you want to so that you are genuine, but you're going to have to put a little bit of taste and consideration for others for that at the same time, in my opinion. Yeah. I think this is one of those topics where, you know, like we talked about last week with, with a mentor, you know, if you can go ask that person what their opinion is or what works at your organization, you know, because I think each organization is different. I've, I've had bosses that I work for that dressed much uh, more casually than I would be comfortable dressing. Um, Right. You know? And so um, I think, I think it's one of those things that if, if you don't feel comfortable with uh, you know, sort of your own opinion, you need to go seek out and get, get somebody else to help you out with that. Um, You know, somebody that's got some, some more experience in the organization than you do, but um, you know, I think it goes well beyond dress and, uh, you mentioned your, you know, your personal brand. And I think that's a great conversation. We probably ought to do a whole show on that sometime. Right. But <laughs> I mean, that goes into, you know, how you dress and making sure that your, you know, stuff's not wrinkled that you're wearing, you know, a wrinkled shirt can go a long way to making somebody look sloppy. Um, yes. so you definitely want to make sure you're, you know, um, I know professionally now I have my shirts dry clean because it's really hard to get them to look as good at home as they do when they come out of the dry cleaner all pressed. Um, but you know how you hold yourself. Um, some of the language that you use, I, I tend to be very casual and, um, I know in, in the past that, you know, I've gotten a couple comments here and there about, you know, uh, being a little bit too casual in conversation or, you know, joking around or having too, fun too much, right. Being a little, being a little more formal probably would have helped me in, in some situations. So um, I think it goes well beyond the dressing part of it and, and, you know, encompassing your whole personal brand. I do too. Yeah. That's a very good point actually. With that kind of, kind of feel like we've wrapped that up a little bit and was going to move on to our, um, the next segment, which is the career fails. Career fail of the week. And you put up an interesting article that I didn't know there was a follow-up. So I think on episode one, we talked about the, was it the Navy commander and the, 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 on the, sh- on the carrier that was dismissed. Yeah. So it was uh, out? Uh, Captain Crozier. Um, you know, there were some COVID-19 cases on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. It's a, right. uh, a carrier, you know, aircraft carrier. Um, and so he was asking, you know, for some help with that and he wanted to offload some people off the boat so they can get attention and, those sorts of things. And this letter ended up getting leaked to the media. Um, my understanding is he didn't, he did not leak it to the media, but somebody else did. Um, anyhow, he ended up basically getting relieved of duty, i.e. got fired. Um, and then at the time the Navy, um, secretary of the Navy, Thomas Moodley, uh, came onto the ship and, you know, gave a speech to everybody over the PA system. That wasn't very nice. And, um, uh, so apparently, uh, the secretary of the Navy, uh, has resigned, uh, and they are in process or they have re are going to reinstate the, um, 
the captain. Um, now the captain did end up having COVID-19. So he was in quarantine in Guam for a while. Um, but, uh, apparently he's going to be, uh, he's going to be reinstated. Everything's going to basically go back to the way it was, except they're going to have a new secretary of the Navy. Uh, and I saw somebody from the army was going to take over that position. So, uh, wow. Big brew. Ha ha. I don't know if Trump got involved in this one or not. He said he was going to look into it. Uh, but obviously something happened behind the scenes here because, uh, man, it was a big hole, uh, study and what not to do. Yeah, I would definitely say so. And there would, so is there any indication on the, the article, Chris, as to why they brought back the, um, Crozier? Is that how you say his name? Crozier? Or Cro- I don't know. Uh, it's spelled C R O Z I E R Crozier, I think. Crozier. Did they, um, they indicate why they brought him back? No, um, you know, I, that kind of sends a mixed message right there, doesn't right. it? Right. I guess the Navy said that they were uh, pending an investigate. They wanted to finish the investigation before they reinstated him. Um, but the, you know, it was uh, dependent on the results of a complete investigation surrounding his firing and the alleged leak to the media uh, letter to his chain of command. So, huh. um. They they didn't really say that they were wrong, but I think, you know, as soon as they reinstate him, that's a pretty big admitting <laughs> admitment of they were wrong. We screwed up. Yeah. You we, can come back and play. Yeah. And I think this, oh, wow. this got way more media attention than anybody in the Navy wanted. Um, oh, I don't think the military likes media, uninvited media attention either. So they, for this to they get to this point. They certainly do not. Um, but the ship had 5,000 crew members. Apparently they had, uh, 840 positive cases and 88 sailors recovered. Uh, and it said one sailor died, um, last, uh, it says one sailor died last week after he was found unresponsive in his quarters and spent several days in the ICU. So, um, yeah, so, so really sad thing there on the ship that, you know, that they had, uh, it just goes to show you, I mean, on those boats, I mean, if somebody gets something, it's going around, right? Everybody's going to get it this kind of test this kind of test that stay at home and quarantine theory excuse me this you've got them all on the same ship and this the crozier wanted them off the ship because he knew it's going to spread like wildfire there's no way to keep this contained there's just it's just not going to happen they're aware of how illness spreads on these ships right so this you've got a very a very you know controlled environment as best as you can control it and it didn't. It didn't work. This quarantining, this shutdown, this stay at home, or stay on your ship rather, it didn't work. And it, it, it didn't have the the outcome that they were hoping for. So obviously, people know it's going to spread. Yeah, and, I'm, and unfortunately, somebody passed from it, and that's that's very sad. I'm not sure if he was asking to just get the sailors that had positive cases off the ship, or if he was asking to get everybody off the ship. But either way, I mean, you know, you're when you're on those boats, everybody has a job to do. Right. And if you were to dump, you know, there are 5,000 crew members. If you were to dump a thousand of them off on shore, then the ship really can't operate because you don't have enough people to keep, keep the ship going. Now, I mean, I'm no expert in this and I'm sure people are cross-trained, so they'd probably be able to do something right. But uh, certainly the capacity Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, fight in a war would be reduced if you took, you know, basically, um, you know, one fifth of the crew off the ship or 20% off the ship. So, 
Um, yeah. So I would, yeah, but if they can't operate either way, if they're not able to operate because they're sick, though, you, there's still a loss any other way. Yeah, yeah. It's it's still a still a security a issue. Um, but uh, certainly this this was not handled like uh, like it should have been. And um, I, I I feel good that the captain is is being brought back. Um, I understand that the crew really liked him, uh, which right. which says a lot about a leader. And, uh, and so hopefully the, uh, the upper brass in, in the military will take this as a lesson and kind of move on from it. I hope so. Let's talk tech. You're in the IT corner. So Terry, okay. you put an article in here for the IT corner, uh, how your business can keep up with changing technology trends. What's this all about? Well, I've been doing some things at work where we've been looking at restructuring some um, processes. This has required some new tech tools and, and you know, kind of 86ing some other tech tools. And so in doing this, I looked at this to see how other businesses are trying to figure out the, the right tools to use. And I came across this article and it's kind of lengthy. So have a cup of coffee nearby when you start looking at it. But they had some some really great tips about um, what to keep in consideration when you're looking at, at improving technology um, for your business. And one of them was improved customer service. And so it's, you know, having a financial industry background, I know how important it is to be able to reach out to, to your customers through technology, such as apps. And, you know, you've got to make sure those apps are user-friendly, um, not upsetting the user. Um, for instance, I was using an app the other day to order food and the, this particular um, restaurant's app was horrible. It was not easy to understand, wasn't easy to follow, didn't make a lot of sense. We almost messed up the order because we didn't get what we were supposed to be doing. There was mixed messages between press this or press that. And so that's, it's when you when you have technology and you have customers that are going to be using that technology one way or another, it definitely needs to improve their experience, not uh, make it worse and send them to the the competitor. Uh, but yeah, the, they- the point on, oh, go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> um, well, I was just going to move on to the streamline operations. Did you have something more on the, the user interface for customer service? Yeah, well, on the user interface, um, yeah, so I think software has uh, has definitely gotten better from a UI or user interface perspective. I mean, it's, uh, it's certainly gotten a lot easier to use some software, and uh, I think you've seen a lot of legacy softwares when they do an overhaul, they kind of change the UI and make things more more friendly. Um, but as you know, computer processing power gets bigger or better, um, mm-hmm. there's more availability for, you know, for user interface. So I think, uh, you're only going right. to see that improve and it's only going to frustrate people the longer that, uh, legacy systems are kept around because they're much harder to use. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it, technology itself is hard anyway, and it should, you really want it to be easy for everybody. Yeah. Um, but you know, continuing on with that article, the the point that really attracted me was stre- streamlining your operations, and it kind of got me to thinking. You know, with mom and pop shops aside, that don't have you know numerous types of tools that they can use to improve their business operations. What about the larger organizations that have multiple tools? And I know for my organization, and it's been my experience, they'll have several tools that overlap in features and capabilities, which is kind of a waste of money versus a savings in money, which is what they're going for. And so that's one of the things I think businesses really need to look out for is if you're looking at a new tool, what tools can you get rid of? What can you take off the chopping block? What can you 
move away from if you're going to upgrade or look into a different tool entirely. And this has been kind of part of my experience here lately is and you figure out there's several tools out there you didn't even know were there and available within your own um, organization. And so I think having uh, the understanding of what's out there before you go looking for something new is going to be ideal and that we can decide it's not part of it. Um, it's not part of what part of the the needs factor that you have, or it is, or you know, kind of whatever it is. But know what you've got first before you lo go looking for something else, if, especially if you're looking to increase savings versus throwing it throwing money down the toilet. Yeah, I think uh, you know, like you said, it's uh, it's certainly interesting how you know companies will get into software that have overlapping capabilities and not even realize it. But you know, you mentioned the mom and pop mm -hmm. shops, but even now with mom and pop shops, there's software out there. Uh, CRM systems, um, you know, that, that will do a lot of things for, you know, 30, 40, 50 bucks a month. So um, there's a lot of mm -hmm. software now that you can be using in your smaller operations uh, that are, are very cost effective. And, uh, you know, having led, yeah. um, you know, some rather large uh, enterprise level software teams uh, to be able to implement new software, um, one of the challenges you have is getting all the right stakeholders together and figuring out what each stakeholder need is and who's going to use the software for what. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies don't have very well-defined business processes and you have to uh, figure out what those processes are. And a big trap that a lot of companies will get caught in, especially the bigger ones, is they'll try and make the software conform to their existing business process instead of trying to make the existing software, you know, changing their business process to conform to the, yes. to the, uh, the, the way the software works. And so that can be really be a nightmare when you try and custom modify software to work for your business process. Um, although I, I know a lot of the software yeah. out there is getting more streamlined so you can have your own workflows and then tailor things to how you do it. Uh, but, uh, if you can, if you're implementing, you know, a large piece of software, uh, for productivity, it's, it's really optimal if you can, you know, basically tailor your process to fit how the software already works. I agree. I think you're, you're bringing about a good point is that, you know, it's, it's hard to upgrade and in, improve your technology solutions. If you are using the philosophy, we've always done it this way. And so I, I, those two don't go well together. You have to be willing to change because technology changes and there's a reason that technology is changing. So you're going to have to go with that momentum or don't use yeah, technology. That, that uh, ego driven, you know, we, we've always done it this way kind of thing is really destructive for companies and cost cost companies a lot of money. Yes, I agree. I firsthand agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, but the, you know, the article kind of comes down to the the bottom line of, you know, everybody's using the internet. So you've got to have good broadband with, um, and then, uh, just having a committee that can help you drive to the right technical solutions. And so that doesn't mean having just it people telling you what you need because they don't know your needs. If they're not part of the business strategy, they're not going to understand why you have a need for different solutions. And so there's several, several companies out there that have what's called it steering committees and there's other names for them. And it's, individuals that are throughout the organization that work together to review the needs for tech solutions, what those needs are, what those tech solutions are, and if they are in the right, um, if it's the right matchup. And so if you've got a group that needs a, that wants to implement this new uh, project management software and, you know, they put together whatever they need to put together, you know, do you have a process that you follow and you take it to your IT steering committee and they help you through the process. Um, I think many companies just rely on, you know, one group to make 
most of the decisions. And I think that it goes back to your point. It can be costly and it can really upset business um, strategies and business operations if you don't open up and have multiple perspectives to consider. Yeah, and for some companies that really don't have well-defined processes, it can be really um, an e- a great thing for them to implement some software and just say, okay, well, how does this work? And and let's just use that process, right? And and that's a great mm-hmm. time to improve your organization. Right. But a lot of big companies will get caught in this. No, we've always done it this way. It has to be done exactly this way. And then you spend millions of dollars trying to, to right. customize software. And then at the end of the day, you just end up with a pile of crap that just halfway works, right? You know, as businesses change and software uh, becomes more available, you know, you're going to become less reliant on email. You're going to become more reliant on uh, collaborative applications like uh, Microsoft Teams or Trello, that sort of thing. And uh, and that's really a good thing yeah. for companies is, uh, you know, to move away from those point-to-point communications to move towards team communications, um, collaboratively working on documents, things like that. So there's a lot of exciting stuff that's already here. And, uh, you know, this whole yeah. pandemic thing is really just forcing us to use the tools that we have available to us. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what the new norm is coming mm-hmm. out of this uh, six months or a year from now. Yeah, it will be. I'll be interested to see that for sure. So moving on to parent time, what do you think? You know, give yeah, that let's a do parenting time. <laughs> it's parent time. <laughs> We're joined again this week by Dennis Fontleroy of Dad's Care 2, and he's the uh, founder of Dad's Care 2 and uh, does a lot of advocacy work. Uh, also a dad himself, and uh, so he's going to talk with Tara and I about uh, being a parent and uh, topics around parenting. So welcome, Dennis. Thanks for having me, Chris. Tara, good to see you. You too. So, <laughs> so Dennis, to this week you. with all the uh, all the stuff going on with COVID nineteen and the kids in Kansas here being shifted to uh, being homeschooled or all the schools being closed and parents having to pick up some of the uh, duties that the teachers had to do, we thought we'd talk with you about uh, you know changing up a routine for for a child or for kids and uh, making that shift to homeschooling and uh, you know possibly having more screen time and electronics and and uh, what uh, parents can do about that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very appropriate in this, in this season. Uh, I, I don't think any of us, uh, you know, really saw this one coming. Uh, I sure didn't. Uh, and as a, mm-hmm. as a granddad of uh, grandkids who are in uh, preschool and coming into kindergarten, uh, I had no idea uh, how you have to be so uh, creative uh, and, uh, and adaptable, uh, just to get that learning piece in and get them to turn the corner in, uh, in this part of their educational life. So, uh, how do you guys deal with it? Well, I know on my end, I've been an an online college student for a number of years now. So my kids have seen a really unusual example in the home. So when they had to shift over to the homeschool online thing, I think they were mentally prepared on our end. We got to cheat. We were, we were ahead of the game on this one. So they, they get up in the morning, they sit down on their computer and it's a school issued computer and they check into whatever apps they have to check in on. I think their online app is Canvas. And uh, my daughter has her Zoom meeting. My son is an optional Zoom meeting. They get their stuff done, get off, and then they get to go to play for the day. So they're, they're not perfect at it. They, there is some, um, you know, conditioning and restructuring of the schedule. But for the most part, they shifted fine. They were, while they weren't happy about school being over with because of all the activities and extras, they've done okay with the curricular part of it. 
cool. Yeah, and in uh, in our household, the uh, the kids have have uh, definitely uh, started to adjust. My son um, ha- having the easiest time, I think, because he. Uh, he doesn't feel as disconnected from his friends, but my daughter, uh, who's a little bit younger, she definitely feels disconnected from her friends. And they, you know, they've mostly uh, gotten into the routine of doing their Zoom meetings and things like that. But uh, um, my daughter's really uh, been struggling with the number of websites that the school has issued uh, or that they're requesting that she uses. Um, you know, she's in fifth grade right now, going into sixth grade next year. So. You know, she's 11 years old, and they've asked her to use uh, about seven or eight different websites for various things, from reading and math. And so, you know, keeping track of all these passwords. And then um, she was using her Chromebook, and then some of the sites wouldn't work on the Chromebook. So we just shift Mm -hmm. over to a different computer. And it's just been, um, you know, it's it's been a nightmare. And the, the worst part about all this is that she really genuinely wants to get the work done, right? And so she's got anxiety, and she's struggling with, you know, not doing... Um, you know what the teacher wants because she wants to do what the teacher wants to do and um, it's just been really tough and uh, so we've we've worked on it but you know another thing is um, you know the syllabuses are when you do online learning um, it's really hard to have a very clear syllabus I think um, because I've noticed that with my online masters there's there's often times where there's um, a little bit of clarity could have been better kind of thing Mm -hmm. and so um so we've sort of struggled with that and it's like, well, what do they really want you to do there? You know, kind of a thing. So, um, yeah. but fortunately the teachers are helpful there and they're, you know, available and we can email them or zoom call them or whatever. So that, that part has been good, but it, it definitely has been a struggle to make the shift. Well, I think you make a, a good point, Chris, about being separated from others. I know my, my daughter is fine on her own. She's because she's a, she's a unusual wallflower. So being by herself is totally fine. Being with other people is great. She's a nine-year-old in fourth grade and she's really come into her own over the years. So being without that social connection has been fine with her. She can socially connect with our tree outside as far as she's concerned, but there are kids out there who do rely on their friends and that that's their, I don't want, it's not a, a term that applies to everybody, but it's their escape to go to school, be around their friends. Cause it's the only time they'll see their friends. Right. So I think there's something to be said about that social interaction that's lacking with the online homeschooling shift. Well, I think that connectivity, you know, and again, it, when we talk about different, uh, p- the importance of different parenting uh, focus, uh, and the fact that parents need to be connected and children need to be connected and that uh, that family connectivity has to be there in order to give them the security. I think that kind of translates into uh, the connectivity into the school, you know, because a lot of kids don't have a lot of or may or may not have uh, uh, hard, fast um uh, firm relationships at home so they look for that in the schools in their classmates in that teacher that that takes uh that gives them the attention that they need and encourages them that they need so that connectedness piece uh to me is really critical and if you're if your daughter obviously she knows she's loved and she's she's comfortable with the people whose whose life she's in uh and she doesn't need a lot of friends you know then it does it does uh it works for her and she can continue to uh to thrive as opposed to just uh maintaining survival mode and who am i who do i belong to so that connection is critical 
Yeah, and I think definitely having uh, you know a structure for them to follow because at school it's very structured. You know, it's yes. from this time to this time is this thing, and that's the same thing every day, or you know maybe every third day or whatever. And so, you know, keeping them on the same you know schedule is is, is you know important, but it's also a lot harder at home, I think, because there's a lot more distractions, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, at school they just can't run down to the cafeteria and grab a snack, but they can right. do that at home. You know, yeah, they can, yeah. So I think there's a lot more challenges to to doing the thing at home and keeping it structured and, and keeping them mm-hmm. on track. And mm-hmm. certainly, if you're a parent working from home trying to do your job, uh, it's I think it's doubly hard because you've got to not only concentrate on your stuff, but also you know make sure they're doing their thing. Right. Well, I wonder a little bit in watching my kids if there isn't some value that kids are losing in school right now because they're they took a you know a six hour seven hour day and they scrunched it into three and so you know i've seen my kids say you know what i i can get it done not a big deal i mean they're they're getting through it but they're like why am i in school all day long if i can do this stuff in three hours you know they've given me everything i need and i have no problem going outside and being active to cover the pe part of it and i can put it together a musical instrument with a you know a pot pan and a utensil why am i in school all day long what is the point of this and so I'm really struggling watching them logistically think through what are you guys doing to us in school for seven hours? What is happening? And I, that's that's a scary part about it. It's like, how do you explain that to your kid? Well, it's just how it is. And that's not really a, as far as my parenting goes, that's not something I'm willing to put in front of my kids. I've, I've always told my kids, you need to have an argument and a reason why you're saying what you're saying. And so it's hard for me to to validate the three hours versus the six or seven hours well, can I say this? Because I I look at that as the opportunity uh, to really uh, clarify time management, uh, the importance of uh, how everything that you do and how you do it links to the other. Uh, and I was going to say before that uh, that that uh, that sequence that thing that you do every day that consistency in your organization in your schedule if the parent continues to do what they do every day and the children are watching what they do every day they're going to learn that order and consistency and when they ask well why do you do that and then that gives you the opportunity not just to say well that's just the way it is and uh but the opportunity to say okay so this is why uh I take my shower in the morning, let's just say, or how I do my morning routine. The reason why I do my morning routine is because I know I'm going to be uh, close to others during the day. And I know that if I don't do my morning routine, then I'm going to smell a certain way and I'm going to be close to others. And then they're going to look at me, you know, crazy, you know, and, and so I'm trying to be proactive because I know that this is going to happen. So the correlation of what you're doing and why that is important is you're able to teach that. And even with the school, when you take from a, uh, a six or seven hour day and you, and you put it into three hours, well, those three or four hours, you can take that and look at how much time goes between class, how much time is lunch, how much time is, um, an assembly, how much time is uh, questions that may or may not need to be answered by you or the other students. So uh, it, it, it allows us the opportunity 
to show that other, uh, to, 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 to get them to understand it. it's not what you see, it's what you don't see. And I, I say that a lot because it is, it's, it's really uh, the surface, even in what we're doing now, mm-hmm. is not what people are going to see or even hear. It's what we have been able to live, learn how to communicate, and then transfer to others. See, nobody, uh, uh, Tara, I can't see your heart. Chris, I can't see your heart. But I know that your the, the heart that you have moves you to do something that's visible. You, you understand what I'm saying? So it allows us, it allows us to teach the, the correlation between doing a lot of stuff that takes a lot of time and really concentrating on what's, what's uh, important. Does that make sense? Good, <laughs> yeah, I think it, I know I was waiting on Chris. Yeah, I, I think it does. I, I I think it does make sense, and it's um, it helps to it, it could probably help to to determine to help other to help my children determine that value for an all day versus a three hour day. Um, with that in mind, I know we're coming um, up to our time. If I think if we go around between the three of us and offer one tip to the parents out there as to what's working best in our households for this shift. I think that'd be a great way to close this out. Chris, what's, what tip do you have for our parents out there that are struggling with this homeschool shift? In- so my, my big tip for parents is to be patient because, um, you know, kids will take some time to, to adjust to routines. And, and uh, I think, you know, this is the time, if any, for, for you to just kind of, uh, you know, remember that change is not instant and change is difficult mm-hmm. and, and, you know, give these kids country mile, you know, make sure that they have all the grace that they need to, to transition, you know, transition into this and, you know, don't let them take advantage of you, but, um, certainly be patient with them if they're, if they're not getting stuff in school like they would, or, um, not understanding or, or not able to concentrate as long, you know, just, you know, take it one step at a time and, and give them, give them a little bit of room because this is certainly not something any of us have ever been through. And I think they're going to remember, you know, in the long term how you reacted um, or acted during this whole time. And, and I think that's going to leave an impression on them. So I think it's important that you, uh, you just remember to, uh, to be patient with this and uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, make sure that you don't set a bad example for them. What about you, Dennis? So, um, you know, my master's is, is, is in organizational development, which is in, which is in managing change. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, as well. <laughs> right. So, so the whole change concept and principle in uh, attempting to take uh, two different levels or two different sides or two different circumstances, whether good or bad, and improve it uh, really helps me in that uh, I'm always looking at, okay, uh, how does both sides uh, benefit or what is their uh, what, what is their motivation? And so to me, uh, as a parent, I'm always trying to uh, encourage them to be the best and to understand that they may or may not understand everything that I'm saying. And so I got to continue to try to communicate on their level while raising their level of understanding so that we can um, get to that point where whatever it is they're searching for out of life, you know, they understand the process to go about getting there. Uh, 
Yeah. Does that, does that make yeah. sense? So, and being consistent in the communication and who I am, because kids know when you're flip flopping back and forth, when you, you know, yeah. you let them drink pop in the morning for breakfast <laughs> or, or you insist on them drinking juice. Right. <laughs> so that consistency piece and, and just trying to uh, bring everything into uh, congruence uh, in everything that you're trying to do. That's pretty awesome. I think my tip would be just to be open. This is a very unusual time. I think you guys have both pointed out this is unprecedented for our generations. This is unusual. And there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of information from multiple websites to a shift in the, the schedule to, you know, it's, it's hard to maintain that consistency. So playing off of both of your points, just being open to the idea of you're not going to understand everything your child is learning, no matter the grade level that they're in. They, they're they not going to know how to conduct themselves either on Zoom meetings or on online when it comes down to doing different activities online. And so just being open to new concepts, new ideas, just a whole new way of thinking about what school looks like because it's definitely changed. And hopefully things will go back to normal, so to speak, in the, the fall. But for right now, just being open, I think, is the best bet for our household anyway. Excellent. I, I agree totally. Well, Dennis, thanks again for joining us, and we'll look forward to talking with you next week. All right, folks, I appreciate y'all. You guys have a great evening. You too. Be safe. <laughs> See ya. God bless you. <laughs> Welcome to Media Madness. I have an interesting pick this week. It's not a book. It's not, you know, the documentary that you, you brought forth last time. This is um, kind of goes back to the IT thing a little bit with um, – it's an article that I found. It's called The Four Most Damaging Myths About Kids, Screen Time, and Technology. And I picked this because what are we doing right now? We're at home with our mm -hmm. kids who are online schooling for the first time ever. For most of us parents, there's there's, there's a small percentage of, of students who are out there who do online school because it's easier for them. And that's great. But we've got everybody, the entire population in our state is doing online schooling. And so for those I know as a parent, I have struggled with some of the screen time that my kids have. There's cases sometimes where I let them make their decisions and let them suffer the consequences, like staying up till three o'clock in the morning watching YouTube. You're still getting up at seven a.m. Yeah. to go to school. That's that's how that's going to work and teach you a little bit. And my my kids have self-parented in that respect of oh, I probably shouldn't stay up that late because right. I still have to get up tomorrow. And they've tried some great excuses to not you know I'm so tired. Yeah, <laughs> of course you are, but you're still going. And so with this, there's just four myths that. Um, I've seen over the, the several years that screen time has been available for kids. And I know I'm, I'm old enough. The screen uh -huh. time was not a thing when I was growing up. So I, I, and Chris, I think you can share that, that with me. You didn't have a problem with screen time. If you were bored, you went outside or you watched TV. And even then your parents yeah. didn't want you on the TV that much. They wanted you outside doing something. And so. Well, we, I mean, we had screen time a little bit, right? You had Nintendo. Right. Yeah. You, uh, something you easy. Know, Super NES and those sorts of things. So we're, I mean, you know, my growing up, uh, and I think I was just on the very beginning of that, that whole thing. And I mean, but before that screen time was like Etch-A-Sketch, right? Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you yeah. typically got bored of Etch-A-Sketch at some point. So you put it down and went on to something else. Right. And so this article talks about when to introduce kids to screens. And I disagree with when it states you're going to, because there's no way you can, it says you should wait until kindergarten to introduce kids to screens. There is, I cannot see a way for that to happen unless you have a religion that prevents you from utilizing electricity and in, in the screen. And I'm just, I don't see that happening. I saw an 18 month old using their parents' phone to keep them busy during a basketball game a few months back. And so 
it's inevitable that our kids are going to be on screens from a very early age, whether it's it's upsetting to the the, the mind, the brain, or whatever the the eyes. It's going to happen. And so I disagree with a couple of the myths on here. Um, it does make clear that children learn in different ways, and the the way that children learn is evolving, or learning new things about child development. So not all apps that say they're the best child um, learning app is the is what they are. You're going to have to use some common sense and some research skills and look into some of the apps you're exposing your kids to. But one of the things I found interesting is the uh, it talks about how not all gaming is bad. It's myth number four: video games are inherently bad. And so those who know me personally know I'm not a video game fan. <clears throat> My mm -hmm. kids never would have seen the lights of any console ever had it not been for one very kind person who brought over their system and gave it to my boys. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, uh, you're not my favorite person, but fine, they have it now. And so my, I grew up in a family who loved to play video games. I wasn't any good at it, so I was always outside and they were playing video games and that's fine. But this does bring up some good points that I've had my girlfriends and my other video gamer friends have told me that... You know, video game isn't video games aren't bad. They do have some good qualities to them. There's some games that are strategy based, so it's problem solving. There are some games that um, enhance um, motor skills, and so there's coordination that can be in, um, gained from that. There's even some games that help build emotional intelligence. And so, you know, a lot of people are upset. A lot of parents are really upset about some of the games out there that are high violence, high graphics, high gore. And my kids play all those games, whether I like it or not. I, I saw some of the stuff that my family was playing that I tried to play. And honestly, the graphics are different. Other than that, it's not really all that much different, I don't think. But the one thing I will say that's different is, you know, there is some conflict with how parents, with, you know, there's, I guess, some confusion as to if these games are acting as simulators to kids. So they go out and perform these acts that they're doing on video games in real life. Or can they tell the difference between reality and fantasy? And I think that's where the parents need to come into play at is the the ability for a child to discern the difference between a video game and going outside the front door, I think di directly is, is related to the relationship with the parent. You know, are you using the game as a means of avoiding your kids so you can do your own thing? Or are, are the kids allowed to play because this is their thing? They're not an athlete. They're not a math whiz. Video games are their, that's their crutch, that's their thing, but they do other things as well. And so I'm, um, I can see how video games can be a positive. I can see how they can be a negative too. What about you, Chris? I think you've got a gamer in your family, don't you? Yeah, my, my son likes the uh, race car simulator stuff and he'll play it like probably 24 hours if we let him. Uh, <laughs> right. But yeah, he, uh, I mean, he, he definitely uh, enjoys it. And, uh, but, you know, I think there's uh, some things parents got to realize in, in these days. Um, one is that I think kids socialize on video games, right? Because, um, you know, back in the day, games weren't connected to the internet and you couldn't chat with right. people or you couldn't, you know, challenge people and that sort of thing. And nowadays it's all connected. And so, you know, instead of, you know, playing Sandlot, right, they're, they're playing virtually <laughs> together. Um, so right. I think, I think it's important to recognize that kids actually socialize through this. And if you were to remove that social interaction from them, then it's going to have the same effect as really, you know, isolating them from their friends. So, um, right. I think it's a more complex issue than just, you know, screens are good, screens are bad, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there are some studies out there that do link, uh, you know, violent, you know, video games to violent behavior. Um, but largely in part, people aren't like, playing call of duty and then going out and shooting up the neighborhood. Right. Um, right. The ones that, that are 
acting violently have, like you said, usually uh, bad, um, you know, they don't have a family support system and they don't have, uh, you know, any sort of discipline at home and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's, um, it, it is a complicated uh, topic, but, um, you know, there are, are good and bad parts about video games. And I think um, largely it's up to the parents to, you know, make sure that they separate, uh, you know, fantasy from reality and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and make sure the kids know that, um, you know, one thing, I mean, this is pretty benign, but my son's almost driving age and he loves driving in the simulator. And so, you know, there'll, there'll be times where I'll just jump in and he'll kind of coach me through driving. And I mean, you know, I've been driving for a long time. Um, right. But, you know, driving the simulator is not like driving the car, uh, a real car. And so, yeah. you know, he's going to learn the, the difference between the simulator and the real car once he gets his permit. But, uh, you know, in his head, he's thinking he's going to jump in the car and, you know, be able to do the clutch and hit the gas and all that kind of stuff. And it's just going to be, he's got lots of practice at it, but I think in reality, he's going to find out that the simulator isn't quite, you know, a hundred percent accurate and there's some differences there. So, um, I think that'll be a good lesson for him, but certainly it's up to the parents to make sure that the kids understand the difference between fantasy and, and, you know, and reality. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I know my kids been playing for years. We're really, really tight knit family and they they have figured out when to stop and when to keep going and they know that it's it's just a game you know yeah. just like football it's just a game so yep and, and to me i comes, think um comes from it, and it's really easy for kids to get kind of addicted to these things and and um you know to me um it's important to make them take breaks and and let them get used to yes. putting it down kind of thing uh because i think it can be hard mm-hmm. for them to emotionally separate from the game um, you know, if there's, if there isn't anything else better for them to do. Right. So, um, it certainly can right. be the most entertaining thing in the house and making sure they put it down and, yeah. you know, actually come out of the basement or, you know, come see the rest of the family once in a while <laughs> is I think important. Right. I agree. Totally agree. All right. So I've got a, uh, second book on here of the series. Uh, everything is F the book about hope and it's the subtle art. Uh, it's <laughs> the, uh, uh, the companion to the subtle art of not giving an F, uh, by Mark Manson. And so, uh, yep. this is a fantastic book and I thought it was really appropriate given the whole COVID-19 stay at home crisis, <laughs> you know? Um, but the, the book is interesting because he, he goes on to talk about how, you know, if you look at figures and facts, um, things are the best that they've ever been, you know, uh, when you look at homelessness mm-hmm. or you look at, uh, rates of diseases or, you know, wealth, those sorts of things, all those indicators are generally up. Uh, but yet people feel like, um, it's the end of times, right? Like things are the worst that they've ever been. Right. So, uh, you know, he, he, he's got a lot of interesting things in here and his writing style is very, uh, relaxed and fluid. Uh, and it's almost like you're having a conversation with him. Mm-hmm. So, uh, he's got a lot of, uh, humor. There's, there's some crude, language in here now and then, but, uh, for the most part, it's pretty good. Uh, but yeah, he's, uh, it's a great book. It's a pretty fast read. It's only a couple hundred pages. Uh, and, uh, and it's, you're definitely going to come away with this going, you know, he's not gonna really tell you anything. I don't think that you didn't already know, but you're going to go, yeah, that makes sense. 
I'm in the, I'm actually in the middle of this book right now. And it's one of those things where you definitely should yeah. read the first one. In my opinion, I would cover that first one first. So you understand what he's talking about in this one. Cause otherwise it, he's going to sound right. kind of like a jerk yeah. if, if you're not familiar, <laughs> but it's, it's a book. If you're, if you don't like to think or be provoked into thinking a little deeply, it's, it's, it, this book will frustrate you. But if, if you are open and have good perspective about hearing other people's side and, and hearing something new, this book is really good about getting your your thoughts moving and really opening up what you see around you. And so it's 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 it can be. I, I found myself having difficult times listening to it, thinking, "Nope, I can't, I can't keep listening to you." And I thought, "No, I I know this guy. I know how he writes. He's going somewhere with this, and he always goes somewhere good with it." So I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna stay true to it and, and get and finish this chapter. But it's it is it's a great book. I'm I'm enjoying it. And I'm ready to get through the rest of it. <laughs> All right. Well, Tara, to wrap things up here, um, you wanted to talk about uh, constructive ways to express your opinion, thoughts, and expertise. Yeah. You know, in, in bringing things to a close, um, I think it's important to always try to find that constructive way to express your opinions, your thought, and the things that you're most knowledgeable on, your expertise. Um, it's really tough to think outside the box. And that's going back to the, the book that you picked for this week's uh, Media Madness. But it's better than to think outside that box than be stuck in it. And so I think we're all stuck in boxes right now being in our homes. We're limited on what we can and can't do. But as we've stated several times, there's a lot of creativity that's flowing from the four walls that we're all stuck in. There's a lot of people putting things out there and finding ways to um, create new outlets for the stress and for the things that we're experiencing right now. And so, um, you know, don't limit yourself to what you've always known, open up your perspectives, think a little bit outside that box and free yourself up a little bit to see what, what all you're capable of, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice. And, uh, you know, certainly being able to, uh, deal with, uh, out of the ordinary is really helpful right now. And I think, uh, everybody's getting a big old lesson in, uh, and how to not be normal. Yeah. Oh yeah. This it's completely unfamiliar territory. And I think it's an opportunity to do great things with it. If, if we would just allow ourselves and permit ourselves. So that's, that was what I wanted to bring about for this is just everybody's I've, every time I hear somebody, are you the first question they want to ask, how's your sanity? Yeah. Are you keeping up with you? Are you okay? <laughs> or you see on Facebook checking with such and such people, they are not okay. Yeah. And, and I think there's something to be said about that. This is a, it's a trying time, whether, um, whether we're in support of it or not, doesn't matter. We still need to do it to act as a community of practice. And, uh, but in the meantime, find a way to, you know, let yourself loose and free yourself up, up a bit and learn something new about yourself and see what happens. Absolutely. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. If you like us, head over and give us a five-star review and tell us to uh, tell your friends about our show. Uh, don't forget, if you want to send us feedback, our email is bizandmayhem at gmail.com. That's B-I-Z-A-N-D-M-A-Y-H-E-M at gmail.com. Check out the show notes. It's at bit.ly slash B-A-M-S-1-E-3. And tell us your thoughts. Let us know what you think. Uh, and if you uh, like us, go ahead and toss us a buck or two over a Patreon. Uh, we'd love your support because putting on a podcast is not free. I'm Chris Batchelor. And I'm Tara Parker. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.